Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 130 of the Standard Issue pod scene. I'm Mickey Noonan and I went to the circus. Please tell me about your trip to the outside world. It was amazing actually. I managed to squeeze in a trip to the circus on Friday night, Zippo Circus. That wonderful blend that the circus has of incredible cheese and jaw-dropping feats. It's brilliant. Mm. It's brilliant. And then on Saturday in the afternoon, I went to a pub beer garden. Wowzers. Received the news there that that was the last time <laughs> I would be allowed out. Yeah, I went on a last minute panic run around all my mates' houses to say goodbye. I, I hope to see you again at some point in the not too distant future. Anyway, I'm Hannah Dunleavy. And on that note, thank fuck for support bubbles. Indeed. Beard of Panic on Twitter after Chris Mason said something. He didn't say there weren't going to be support bubbles, but he said something that led people to believe that there wouldn't be support bubbles. And yeah, there was a minor panic. But they still exist. Hooray. You don't have to make your own out of toilet paper or anything. No, I can actually talk to my mum. And my mum is marginally better company than that balloon with a face on (laughs) that I started talking to in week five. (laughs) Later on, I catch up with disability and inclusion campaigner Jo Milne. She tells me about what's happening in her world, how masks are a problem for deaf people and a new public health awareness campaign around Usher's syndrome. I chat to director Eva Mulvad about her new documentary about refugees, Love Child, and to Layla, one of its stars. And in Rated or Dated, we watch Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca, released in the UK 80 years ago last month. I tell you. But first, it's also terribly, <laughs> terribly, terribly grim. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Next slide, please. Remember, remember the 5th of November. Allowed out the house, you are not. Well, you are. But more on the staying ins and going outs in a minute. Because yes, it might have been the moment we've all been expecting. But Saturday's announcement that this Thursday will see the start of England's lockdown mark two still landed like a sack of sloppy shit into the open mouths of the hospitality sector, the self-employed, the poor and the struggling. The idea of a circuit breaker two-week lockdown has been being mooted by scientists as a very good idea since Sage proposed one on September the 21st. Obviously, with our current government not prone to do anything immediately if they can sit on it for an arbitrary amount of time, it was even suggested it could be delayed to coincide with October half-term. Scotland substantially tightened restrictions early on in October. Northern Ireland duly went into a four-week lockdown as of October the 15th, while Wales implemented what it termed a 17-day fire break on October the 23rd. And in merry old England, a complicated tier system came into play. Central and local government went to war, and our erstwhile Prime Minister repeatedly stressed he was working to avoid a second lockdown. Next slide, please. Yeah, that hasn't gone so well. And I'm pretty sure even Boris Johnson's staunchest supporters would be surprised to see him walk in a straight line rather than a series of U-turns these days. And so, here we are. As of Thursday, all non-essential shops, restaurants, pubs and leisure facilities will close for at least four weeks. Outdoor exercise is permitted with members of the same household or one person from another household. People will be allowed to leave home to care for vulnerable people or to escape injury or harm. Takeaways and deliveries will continue to be allowed. The furlough scheme, covering 80% of the wages of workers who are temporarily laid off, but crucially leaving the self-employed out in the cold, will be extended throughout November. 
And finally, despite education unions calling for schools to shut and university learning to move online, they're both staying open. At least there's a time limit though, right? Well, no, the misinformation continues. Rishi Sunak saying the new lockdown rules will expire on December the 2nd as a matter of law, while Michael Gove saying new lockdown could yet be extended. It's almost like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing to the Johnson in charge. Next slide, please. God, there's so much to say about this. I mean, you and I had a conversation on Friday about what we were going to talk about in the Bush Telegraph, and we thought it might be a bit thin on the ground, (laughs) given that we couldn't talk about the American election, because obviously it will have happened by the time this comes out. And now I've got so many things to say, I don't think the batteries in my podcasting kit can cope with it. I mean, a couple of things, like, obviously, please, for God's sake, stop fucking leaking to newspapers so that we hear stuff as rumour before we hear it as fact. That fucks me off. Secondly, journalists need to stop asking two and three part questions like they're in the Q&A section at Comic-Con. Ask one good question and make them answer it. And lastly, Jen and people like Jen, and by that I mean women at home with babies, should not have to count their baby as a full person. That is a fucking outrage. It is outrageous. It feels like while people are possibly more prepared for a lockdown because it's no longer unprecedented, Mm. a lot more people are going to be isolated. People weren't prepared for it, I think, as much as they were the first time because furlough ended on the same day this was announced, which means some companies laid off staff knowing there would be no furlough scheme. And now those people are not entitled to the new furlough scheme. So there will be people now who are... I I know people who had to lay people off last week because there was no furlough scheme. The furlough scheme was coming to an end. And now it's back. But that's not going to help anyone who got laid off on Thursday. It's a very tricky situation, obviously. I mean, there's the understatement of 2020. But there's no right answer. And so lockdown is necessary for lots of reasons. I can absolutely see why it's terrible for a lot of people at the same time. The only thing I'm absolutely sure of is that this should have been done sooner and would have had a better effect on the infection rate and Mm. less damage on the economy and on people's mental health. Yeah. Next slide, please. Man, I wish we had slides because <laughs> there are some tweets that I'd love to give a better airing. Obviously, I'd I'd make sure that I cut the vast majority of them off when they appeared on the screen. You didn't watch this on TV, did you, Mick? I don't know what you're talking about, Hannah, so clearly not. They put slides up to show us, like, the infection rate and all of that. But they were too big for the TV screen. <laughs> so basically, there was stuff missing at the top around the sides. And some of it had so much information that even on a widescreen TV... You weren't able to read what they said. So they were utterly pointless. Anyway, back to what I was going to say. Guess what, Mick? Go on. The latest season of Labour Wars is back on Twitter. Hooray. Smashes head into wall repeatedly. So last week, the long-awaited Equalities and Human Rights Commission investigation into Labour anti-Semitism found that the party was responsible for unlawful acts. It concluded the party had breached the Equality Act 2010 in three ways, via political interference in anti-Semitism complaints, failure to provide adequate training to staff handling them, and harassment of Jewish members by agents of the party. Agents of the party sounds terribly sinister, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, fittingly sinister, I think. (laughs) Q total shitstorm. 
Might as well start with Jeremy Corbyn, who was the leader of the party earlier this year. And what I will say about this pandemic is that it does make things seem much further away, which in this instance is a good thing. Uh How do you think he reacted, Mick? Uh, The same as he's reacted before. (laughs) Correct. He put out a statement that said, quote, one anti-Semite is too many. Dramatic pause. (laughs) But... The scale of the problem was also dramatically overstated for political reasons by our opponents inside and outside the party, as well as by much of the media. I don't know about you, dear listeners, but I'd have had more respect if he'd actually said, I, Jeremy Corbyn, am the real victim here, because at least it would have been honest. Yeah, yeah. In his mind, obviously, not in mine. This ridiculous but not unpredictable, as you've just proved, self-pity did not go unpunished, though, and led to his suspension from the party. But not before he was given an opportunity to apologise, which he decided not to take (laughs) and instead to go on TV to repeat the statement. Q meltdown across social media platforms as fans of the Corbyn Project, some of whom increasingly seem as much like members of a cult as anything, plus Momentum, Outriders and sundry Labour MPs, roared for justice for Corbyn. Other corners of social media called for Starmer to be turfed out of office and their beloved leader reinstated, while yet others demanded the foundation of a second Labour party. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Funnily enough, some of those people were exactly the same people who were taking the piss out of Chikaramuna and co for founding their party, but let's not dwell on that. That was the past, obviously. We'll rewrite that at some point. Yeah, totally, totally. And while I'm not suggesting that any of these specific people are necessarily anti-Semites, apart from making me want to rend my garments and run into the street screaming, all it appeared to do was encourage more and more anti-Semites to air their noxious views. What another great episode in Labour history, eh? It's just so nice to have such a coherent opposition to the government. (sighs) Next slide, please. As long as it's not one featuring Nigel Farage's renaming of the Brexit party to reform so we can focus on fighting lockdown, given Brexit's all sorted and everything, I simply do not have the energy for his wank spaffery. It's interesting, isn't it? Because his is called reform and Lawrence Fox's is called reclaim. Yeah. So perhaps the new Labour Party could be called repulse, maybe. (laughs) It sounds like a club I used to go to. (laughs) I'm just going to assume you do want a good news story, Mick. No need to lift your head from the desk. (laughs) This week, 80-year-old retired music teacher Paul Harvey has topped both the iTunes and Amazon charts. Hooray! The story started a few weeks ago when Paul's son Nick asked his dad to improvise a piece of music on his piano using just four notes, which had been something of a party trick over the years, and is a skill he retains despite having dementia. After a clip of the resulting composition was uploaded to the internet, it went viral. The story soon made its way to BBC Four's Broadcasting House. That's the name of a programme as opposed to, like, Broadcasting House. Although, obviously, when you call something that, it's ripe for confusion. Oh, it's like when the music came out. Why would you call a band the music? Just ridiculous. You want to make it hard to Google, presumably. Mm. Anyway, this led to listeners suggesting that it could be recorded by an orchestra. A less simple task than it sounds, given social distancing regulations. But undeterred, the BBC Philharmonic recorded the various parts in isolation, combined it with Paul's piano track and released it as a single to raise money for two charities, Alzheimer's Society and Music for Dementia. On hearing it had topped the charts, Nick told PA, quote, Both Dad and I are blown away by it. 
Dad is so happy his music is resonating with people. He is being defined by his music, not his dementia, and that is wonderful to see. Yes, it is, Nick. Yes, it is. I am vigorously nodding. That is very lovely. Aww. More news next slide, please. (laughs) Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where, sadly and fury-makingly, we are spoiled for choice. And so, I plaintively beseech you, will nobody think of the killers? I am, of course, joking, because as we all know, as far as the mainstream media is concerned, the killer is all, while women continue to be considered merely bit players in the stories of how their lives were stolen. And yes, I have wanged on about this a lot on Standard Issue, and yes, I am going to continue to do so. I encourage you to join me, because male violence is a deadly issue, and this ongoing representation of men who kill women as isolated incidents of nice men suffering a momentary loss of control has to stop. So one, her name was Reva Steenkamp, a 29-year-old model and aspiring lawyer, murdered by her controlling boyfriend, Oscar Pistorius, on Valentine's Day 2013. Not that you'd have known that had you watched the BBC's trailer for a new four-part documentary series, The Trials of Oscar Pistorius, which featured Pistorius's remarkable sporting achievements, praise from Nelson Mandela, and his lie that he didn't do it, but didn't say Reva Steenkamp's name once. Instead, she got girlfriend and a woman. Indeed, it didn't even mention Pistorius's murder conviction. A flurry of fury on social media meant that the BBC apologised and took down the trailer, but the question remains as to why it got through in the first place, presumably through several levels of proofing before sign-off. I mean, the answer's clearly misogyny and social conditioning, but apparently that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. The accompanying press release was also quietly amended. The original description had it that Pistorius had suddenly found himself at the centre of a murder investigation. I mean, you go to bed, you get up, you shoot your girlfriend and suddenly you find yourself in the middle of a murder investigation. I'm hoping that this documentary will shine a light on just how that might happen to a man. (laughs) I mean, I mean, fucking hell, Mickey, it might happen to both of us one day. Yeah, I'm seeing this as a warning, like just sort of so I can prep so it doesn't happen to me. Anyway, that was replaced to reflect that he was charged with murder when he killed his girlfriend, Reva Steenkamp. (laughs) Two... Her name was Claire Parry, nurse and mum of two. She was killed by Timothy Bramer, a constable with Dorset Police, in a pub car park on the 9th of May, with Bramer receiving a sentence of 10 years for manslaughter last week. Claire Parry's death was by strangulation, with the evidence from the pathologist stating that those injuries, which the pathologist described as severe when measured on a scale of mild, moderate or severe, resulted from the application of significant force to the neck for a period of a minimum 10 to 30 seconds and possibly longer. Bramer described that as a kerfuffle, which is how newspapers also described it. And yes, they use quotation marks, but the diminishing of a woman's life being taken remains the same. Oh yeah, Bramer also said he left, not realising Claire Parry was poorly, which, as a police officer trained in the use of force, is pure horseshit. There is a whole mire of horror to wade through in this case, but here's a particularly shocking point. The judge, Mr Justice Jacobs, said Bramer only just met the qualifying trigger for a loss of control defence in that he had a justifiable sense of being wronged because he should have been the one to tell his wife about an affair. When a text message is enough to claim she made me do it, 
the sensitive and accurate reporting of domestic violence and domestic homicide remains vital. As ever, today is a good day to donate to Refuge or Women's Aid or your local grassroots domestic violence shelter. Yeah, it's it's bullshit, Mick. It's what it is. It's bullshit. The point was made that when people did start having a go at the BBC, they did quickly change it. And it feels like that's an achievement. But the fact is, whenever people do argue that that is a terrible way to report on domestic homicide, they get changed now through sheer dint of public force but the next time it happens and it happens so frequently the same reporting comes up time and time again it's like the whole incident before it didn't happen exactly exactly that yeah and that's what really really needs to change because it perpetuates this cycle of seeing domestic violence as solitary incidents when they're not fuck yeah I am joined by the magic of Zoom by Joe Milne, ambassador for deaf children, campaigner to change perceptions of hidden disabilities and former standard issue columnist. Joe, hello. Hello there. How lovely it is to be back in touch. Oh, it's so lovely to see you and hear you. You used to write a regular column for us when we were an online magazine, which charted the first and last of Usher syndrome, which you were diagnosed with in 2003, and following your cochlear earplants in 2014, an operation which gave you the ability to hear for the first time ever. So just in case our listeners aren't aware of it, please can you tell us what Usher syndrome is and how you were diagnosed? Now, Usher's syndrome is the leading cause of combined death and blindness. So, basically, we're born deaf and we have no idea because it's just a lack of awareness of Usher's syndrome. Mm-hmm. And the first time, probably, it's like a tunnel vision, so you can't see like the outer vision. Now, my mum remembered taking me to an optician when I was nine years old, and she said I had a feeling that you can't stay underneath. But it's only over the years the tunnels close more and more and more in. But it's like looking for like a letterbox or like a keyhole. And unfortunately, I only have 5% vision in both eyes now. And this is how much has gradually changed over the years. But it is a progressive condition. And it is actually the leading cause of genetic death blindness. It's incredible how nobody's heard of it. And this is probably one of the things that's happening now, like a crazy, like five, six years later. Because a lot of things have happened in my personal life. I've since been married, I've had children, and I've also moved home. And moving home was probably one of the biggest transitions because I had to go down the route where you have like a new GP, a new dentist, and even with my children, meeting midwives and going to the hospital, all that kind of thing. And all the health professionals hadn't heard of us in And I think I was absolutely a gobsmacked. And I just feel like I've gone back to how it was in the early 90s. And I, back in the early 90s, we were all campaigning left, right and centre because we all just wanted to have a place in society. And that's what it was like for me as a young woman when I was in my 20s. I had a lot to do with like disability rights and going back to the social model of disability. And I really did have high hopes for a very inclusive society, which I thought we would be living in today. And actually, it's not like that at all. What is the problem of public perception around hidden disabilities? And how can we all do our bit to improve it? Because they're not really understood at all, are they? 
they're not really understood. I think a lot of responsibility also lies with the individual because I just say it is an invisible disability. And when people can be acting, can be also, the world can be quite shitty, especially the way it is at the moment. I think there's like a lot of anger. But I always try to step back and realise that that person doing that because they simply don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. So I think, for me, there just needs to be more awareness about and people say, but how can we do that? I think we need to target, first of all, the health professionals, particularly your family doctor, your GP, because this is somebody that's going to be part of your life from the day you're born to the day you die. You're always going to have, you're going to have your family doctor. Now, a very exciting thing that I'm doing at the moment is that I'm launching a public health awareness campaign. Cool. And I've actually got the backing of the Shadow Minister for Public Health. Now, what we're going to do, we're going to target, like I said, GP, frontline professionals, everybody that's working in the healthcare, primary care, that kind of thing. You don't have to know the science behind it. I think it's just like a basic understanding of what Usher syndrome is, just knowing that the two things come together, you are deaf and you are blind. But everybody's different. You can have a very varying hearing loss. You might have to wear cochlear implants. You might do sign language, it's the same with a guide dog, it's the same with a cane. Everybody's different, but the truth of it, you do have both a sensory and a hearing impairment. How much of the population is affected by Usher's syndrome? In the United Kingdom, there's between 9,000 and 10,000, but all over the world, there's 400,000 people with Usher's syndrome. 400,000? Yeah, all over the world, but in the United Kingdom, it's estimated between nine and ten thousand, which is quite a small number. But I haven't felt that because I'm missing people day to day with us in syndrome. I'm finding out that some people who are just growing up as somebody who was deaf, I found out that they have us syndrome too. And I think it's just something we struggle with and we think as we get older, we're having problems with our eyes, mm-hmm. but we don't quite realise that we're falling into a category of becoming deaf and blind. And it becomes increasingly, increasingly difficult. I mean, my mobility, I have to use the cane to get around. And with just 5% vision, it's like looking through, like, like, like I say, like a keyboard. Because I've, I've become such an expert at being able to test the world around me. It's like common sense with the cochlear implant and help to fill in the blanks with that. So I do have like a greater understanding of somebody behind me. And I always remember that very first moment when the implant was switched on. And this is why it was so emotional because I could actually hear people above me. Now this sounds crazy, but this was to do with the flow above me in the hospital. And I could actually hear the footsteps. I realised that the world was a lot bigger and a lot more things were happening around me and it's very hard to explain that. But the cochlear implant have changed my life dramatically. I don't feel like a blind person because the implants are really filling in all those blanks for me. It's incredible. It is incredible because, of course, you'd been profoundly deaf since you were born. So 30 years on, to be able to hear for the first time 
you went viral, didn't you? It went viral. It was crazy. It was 14 million people were starting the first week. It was just incredible. And the thing that happened after that, there was a, a book loan. We loaned a book, Breaking Science, and there was also a publication in Japan. It sent me all around the world. It put me on a, on a global platform to raise awareness of Russian syndrome, which is the condition that I've got. And it was just incredible. And I can always remember one of the best things I came of that was when I was at school, I had a best friend called Amina. Now, Amina is from Bangladesh, and I was the only deaf girl in the school, and Amina was the only Asian girl in the school, and we really did have an amazing friendship. And we've still got this amazing friendship right till today. And I'm actually back in touch with Amina because that video helped her find me again, if oh, you like. Because that's she lovely. I moved away, and it was back in the days where we wrote letters to each other, that, you know, we, we weren't on social media or anything back in the day. Me and I have been working on, like, a clear map like, campaign, because this is just, like, another topic that um, has been coming increasingly difficult for people with hearing problems, not just hearing problems, people with learning disability, anxiety problems, because a lot of people don't realise that a lot of us live even if we're not dead. Yeah. Just how much we rely on facial expressions and watching somebody's lips. I guess because of the panic around the pandemic and actually urging people to wear a mask, as ever, it feels like people with disabilities have been forgotten. Yeah. Well, I think at the moment everybody really does feel invisible. And it's, um, like I said, invisible disabilities really had come to a, a sharp focus. It's like I mentioned before, it's like going back to the 90s that we all feel that we'll have to fight for the, for the equality again and we're all feeling that discrimination. But I really believe that it's nobody's fault. I think we all have to cope the best way we can. And that is by our own confidence and trying to teach the world and try to teach those people who don't know about it. And I've always believed try not to have too much water because it's down to the scientists, it's down to the doctors to know everything about it. Just people around us in society, they just need to know the basic. And this is why my red stripe is the name of the campaign because I have red stripes on my long white cane which helps me get around and the red stripes actually symbolise that I'm old or deaf and this is to me it's just that's all you need to know and then I think it's up to the individual if they would like to find out more about it and vice versa but I do think that it is absolutely appalling when health professionals, doctors and doctors that don't know about it. But again, it's not their fault. I'm very lucky to have the NHS on board at the time when we're going to launch this campaign officially and we're going to hope to do some awareness videos and hopefully try to train, you know, like student doctors, nurses, what I would call the future generation of the NHS and just like a short five minute this is what Usher syndrome is, and when you're out and about, you stay red striped on a white cane, or you come across somebody because we're all part of the world, we're all part of society. I think I don't want to feel invisible anymore, and I think that's been the most frustrating thing because life is absolutely fabulous. It's been absolutely fabulous. I mean, I've got married, I've got two beautiful children, 
and the little boy and little girl, I've got one of these two is acting extra special. I'm happy with just that one little nigger that I just need people to know what I should do real man. So before your video went viral in 2014, did you ever see yourself as an ambassador, as a campaigner? No, no, nothing <laughs> like that, no. I think if I hadn't had any time again, I think I would have been like an art historian. I've always been very, very interested in history. And history is my um, passion. I think through no intention, I've just been thrust into that limelight. And disability rights, if you like, it started when I was young and I, I worked in a library, believe it or not, and then I went into a medical library and it all seemed to escalate from there. And the more I got involved, I think it's just a pattern I have because it's absolutely, it's absolutely appalling where it shouldn't be an issue. I've always said this, and I've said this to some friends recently, when we all try to have like an awareness day or an awareness week. This is wonderful in itself, and I want to do this for Urchin Syndrome, but it shouldn't be a thing. It should just be of the way the world is, and mm-hmm. we're very diverse, and we've just got like a, a world where everybody's different. So I think with the current situation in the lockdown, one positive to come out of this, I hope, is that people like, have got like a clean slate, if you like, I think, for when life gets back to a new normal. That I think everybody would got a chance to try to maybe push that inclusive society more forward and everybody just does their bit. And like I said, it is very simple. It is just, I know what that is. I know what a syndrome is. Mm-hmm. And the difference that it was making to so many lives. And in particular, the parents of newly diagnosed children with a syndrome, because this happened to my own mum from, you know, so many years ago and it yeah. still happened today. And a lot of parents do get in touch with me and they've never heard of it. And that's just something that breaks my heart. The woman that's shouting at me in the court because I won't get out of her way, I just drug that up. But when it comes to the family doctor or it comes to the fact that there's not enough knowledge out there, then something needs to be done about that, absolutely. And I hope to be able to do something about it. Where can people find out more about My Red Stripes? So in a maverick move, here I am jumping in to answer my own question. Why? Well, Joe and I chatted a couple of weeks or so ago before lockdown two, electric boogaloo, or whatever we're calling these latest unprecedented times. And so, yeah, sadly, a lot of the activity planned around My Red Stripes, which was supposed to launch this week, has been postponed. But that is no reason to not get things going early. My Red Stripes is predominantly a social media campaign attempting to encourage the general public to discuss disability, especially invisible disability. And so you can get ahead of the game by following at My Red Stripes UK on Twitter and at My Red Stripes on Instagram. Let's get this awareness party started. Now, that's what Joe's hopes for the campaign are. Oh, and keep an ear out for some exquisite comic timing from Joe's little boy, Teddy, who seemed to know exactly when Joe was about to explain why she sometimes takes her cochlear implants out. And I'm hoping that just the more people who talk about it, people that it's not just about my red drive in talking and the sense of visual impairment. I think my red drive can also highlight anything that symbolises who you are. Because I've always said I'm okay with this. I've always been okay with having a gender with people's perception of it. 
and it's about being it's about being proud. I've never felt a need to have to get wave my cane around and say, look what it is. But I think it's getting to a point now that it feels like I have to do that because people are not becoming aware. So you want people to be more curious? To be more curious, yeah. I remember recently I was walking through um, King Crow with my white cane and somebody thought I was picking up the letter. Oh. You know, when you have one of those yeah. sticks, you get, <laughs> the I thought you get you know, the rubber, yeah. Somebody, and this, this is the truth. People, people wouldn't believe it yet. So people, I would like people to be curious. Do you think that with disability rights, you mentioned it earlier, it does feel like we've gone back to the 90s. That that fight is always happening. It's never It's never been won. Do you think it's because people who haven't got a disability are frightened? Because it is something that could happen to any of us. I, I don't think people are frightened. I think people, people are not doing anything wrong. People just don't know. Because I think that when you get out of the norm, because disability, even today, and I'm trying to say that even now, I feel still underrepresented. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like even out there in the world, it seems to be like a stereotypical view. It seems to be a particular style, a particular colour. It seems to be a particular race. It go on and on. And everybody seems to perceive that. It was what is normal. But it's not. We're in a very diverse world. And I think it needs exposure. I think we need to say that more. And then people just become less frightened, if you like, because of something you say. I mean, there is some positive because through my children died, I'm starting to say a wonderful thing in children's television now, where it's starting to become very, very diverse. Yeah. And this, yes, and this is like a, a point where it's like we're going back, we're like starting again. I think this is like a clean slate because what happened back in the 90s didn't seem to have made any difference. And this is like the new moment now. And dear, my children died. I'm absolutely incredible how there's no boxes, there's no labels, there's no stereotypes, and it's it's back the way that the world should be. We need to celebrate the diversity. And I just feel that for me, people just need to know what the red and white stripes are on the cane. And it's just want to know. It's like you take an example from a child. You say it once to a child, and they just go, oh, yeah. And we just move on and we start talking about something else and we want to get a chocolate biscuit out of the <laughs> Yes, and I think it's the same with adults. You go, oh yeah, it goes in your mind and it's there as a memory that if you ever came across somebody, it's there. And you, you just take that little bit of experience and knowledge for it. Can I get a chocolate biscuit as well? Yeah. <laughs> 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 yes. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, and I do with my children, I just absolutely. I'm very biased. I know all mums feel like that. But one secret I will um, let you in on is that um, it's a bit like being careful what you wish for. Because when I had the cochlear implant, I wanted to hear every single thing that was happening. And now it gets to a point where it's the same time every day. It's between 3 p.m., 4 p.m. And it seems to be a time where my children change into very, very um, unreasonable. <laughs> Are you going to say hello? He's just walking in the room at this time. I mean, that and comedy this... timing was brilliant, mate. Well done. <laughs> say hello to Mickey. Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> okay, darling. Bye. Joe, where can people find you on the internet? I'm Joe Millen on, on Twitter, 
I'm on Instagram, I am on like the um the channel. I've started a few pages for my red stripe campaign, but people will be able to find me just on there as well. Amazing. So everyone get using the hashtag my red stripe and be a bit more curious. And Joe, yeah. thank you so much for joining me and having a chat. It's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you. Lovely to see you all and sending my love to everybody. So, Mickey. Hello. Tell me. Okay. Have you got anything exciting planned by way of the podcast? Well, I've certainly not got anything exciting planned outside of the podcast, <laughs> Hannah. So, yes, I have. I chatted to Carmen Khalil, absolute legend, who started Virago Press, which is the apple that every woman should be eating. Some great feminist literature out through Virago Press. And, of course, Hannah, the head of International Men's Day, it'd be remiss not to talk to Richard Herring, so I'm going to do that. We also have, which is exciting news for me, as I'm a big Horrible Histories fan and big Ghost fan, Lawrence Rickard, who will be appearing on our men's gigcast. And and it's worth me mentioning that we've also got Deliso Chaponda on there as well. Exciting. Also, I've got some things planned for Alcohol Awareness Week. I'm going to be talking about alcohol in pregnancy, which is interesting. We've got a flicking. We've got an outside the box. We're going to have a big review of the year coming up, which will be exciting obviously. I love that you say the review of the year is going to be exciting and it will. You'll be fascinating with loads of facts and stuff but it will just be a background of me screaming into my pillow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So how do we make sure that people don't miss any of this stuff? There's a little thing they could do Hannah. They could subscribe. Subscribe? Yeah. I've never heard that nonsense before. There's a little button on wherever you get your podcasts and if you click that button that will say subscribe. S-U-B-S-C-R-I-B-E then our podcast will be waiting for you, nice and fresh. Let's go and have a cup of tea. Hi, Hannah here. Coming up, you're about to hear an interview that I did with the director, Eva Mulvad, about her brilliant new documentary, Love Child. Love Child offers a poignant portrait of Leila and Sahand, an Iranian couple who fled the country with their four-year-old son, Manny after committing the crime of having an affair while being married to other people. And they were forbidden to get divorced, and in order to stay together, they had to leave Iran. Also on the call was the brilliant Layla. Now, we did this interview two weeks ago, when Love Child was all set to be released on November the 6th. That was before Boris Johnson announced that the nation was going into a second lockdown. Now, I have to say to you, I don't actually yet know what the fate of cinema releases will be now. But what I will say is this interview is really interesting. I think there's never a bad time to talk about refugees and that I will keep you informed on when Love Child will be available in cinemas as soon as I have that information. Okay, so that's coming up now. Enjoy. Hi, I am joined from Denmark by Eva Mulvad, director of Love Child, a documentary which gained rave reviews at the Toronto International Film Festival and won Best Documentary at the Chicago Film Festival. Hello and thank you for joining us, Eva. Hello, nice to be here. And I'm also joined from Turkey by Leila, one of the subjects of Love Child, who fled Iran in 2012 as a political refugee. Again, thank you for joining us, Leila. You're welcome. 
I'm so happy to. It would be churlish for me not to just start briefly, given that 2020 has been the year it has, to ask how things are going in Denmark and in Turkey regarding the pandemic. In, in Denmark, we've had a lockdown that has not been terribly long. I have a nine-year-old kid and we have been homeschooling for three weeks in the spring. And now we are back to normal, more or less. But everybody are looking at the numbers and the figures are going up. So we fear that we will go back to some kind of restriction. To us, it's not been super hot. Of course, it's difficult to do documentary films about reality when you're not allowed to go out into yeah. reality. Yeah, I would imagine. And how are things in Turkey, Leila? It's somehow it's the same because uh, also, as Eva mentioned, there is not much restrictions as before. From this week, we had our normal teaching at the school. I mean, up to now, we had some online classes. But from from yesterday, from today's Tuesday, yes, from yesterday, we had all the primary students in the at the school. Then if something goes well, but from the other hand, we are afraid, still afraid. We, yeah. Perhaps the best place to start with Love Child is, Leila, if you could just briefly summarize for us the circumstances that led to you leaving Iran eight years ago? Actually, it was near 10, <laughs> because after passing someone's on February, it's going to be 10. Wow. Yeah. I had a family in Iran, but in a case that we couldn't live with each other, I had a son that he didn't know his father, and uh, we have no other choice just to leave our country. You know, many people decide to maybe to promote their life, to find a good situation. They try to leave their country I even give the right to them. But for our case, we forced to. We didn't have the other choice. And then we came out and we registered to UNHCR system. As you watched, it takes a long time to get the confirmation mm. behalf them for my case. And it was full of ups and downs in the life. And here in the beginning, we just wanted to come here just for maybe one year and maybe one and year enough. But now it's near 10 years. And the first years, I remember that I didn't even buy anything for my life, for my house, just the very basic ones. Mm. But after a while, I see that there is no update. And then many things happened in the world. Uh, Trump came mm. out <laughs> and uh, he started the new regulations. He he banned the uh, refugees and uh, now we are here still in an unstable way without any updates and uh, just uh, try to survive. Yeah. Eva, how did you become involved? I have been doing uh, documentary films for many years and I'm very interested in trying to do those kind of complicated films where you actually follow a real story in scenes, direct cinema or cinema verite, you call it. And when you do that, you are often looking for very expressive characters, characters who like to be in front of the camera. And uh, a guy who is a Danish director came to my office one day and presented material uh, shot from the first year of the escape where Leila and Sahan are trying to establish themselves in Turkey. And he had done that project with them for a long time and he couldn't finance it. So when I saw that some of 
of uh, the scenes that they they had in this material it was kind of clear for me that this family had one of the skills that that can lead to a good documentary film is like this openness they didn't have any any problems showing intimate uh, intimate scenes from their life so um so i came on board one year into the shooting and i've been following the family ever since trying to capture as much as we could from ups and downs in their their life. Now you say that about being very open. Sahan says to your son at one point in it, he says something that could be the tagline for this film, which is people who want a better life have to go through hard times. And the pressure on your relationship in this is extraordinary. How did you decide, Layla, what you were going to show the camera and Eva, how did you decide what you were going to use? For me, in the beginning, I couldn't accept because we started shooting from Iran. Six months before we leave our country, we started shooting. And for me, in the beginning, it was very hard to be in front of the camera and speak about the problems because it was something like a scene, big scene, like a crime that we have done. Then speaking and confessing those things in front of the camera was something very dangerous for me and could threaten my life. But in the first six months, we had a bad quarrel with each other, fighting all the day that I couldn't, I didn't want to accept. But after a while, when I see that everything goes very serious, the hardships comes and I have no other choice just to come out of Iran, I accepted Sands. Uh, saying that he said that we have nothing just to guarantee to secure our life by this that show to someone out of Iran that what happened to us because we didn't even in in the airplane when he, it landed in Turkey up to that time we were in worries to be arrested behalf Iran then it was something just to send it out of our country to show the to send our voice. To uh, to the others that something happened to this family in this country. Yeah. As you said, the pressure is something. Uh, from one side, we we ne- we knew each other, me and Sahan, but Mani didn't know anything about Sahan. He just visited him sometimes as, in the park or somewhere as an, an uncle. And now it was his new life after losing everything: her, his grandma, his toys, his rooms, everything. Now to live with someone that he is his father. And uh, from one side, I try, me and Sand, both of them, but for me, it was like a hell. Mm. In the, be- the beginning, not days, but the years was, yes, we had the good times. But when I just look at the past, I say to myself, had, how I passed from that mm. storm. Absolutely. Yeah. Eva, how do you make something like this without it feeling really intrusive? Well, I think we all have different boundaries. I like when we can get close to real people. And I think there's a difference between reality TV and then a more artistic uh, choice. And I think we are close to Leila and Sahan in a very respectful way here because I want to put myself in their shoes. And I think it's important in the discussion we have around refugees to actually understand that these are real people. And they could have been you and me. So my my idea of, of making this film so intimate and focusing on the love story that, that we can all relate to mm. is to kind of attack the refugee issue from a different angle and from very basically a humanitarian aspect, saying 
we could all be refugees. And if you were a refugee, how would you tackle mm. these kind of issues? So to me, the intimacy is, is a kind of a bridge into the human aspect of, of all of this. And I think we should be brave enough. And, and if Leila and Sahana are brave enough to show us uh, quarrels and and things happening in their family and joys and, and, and all these kind of um, relevant things that you would also see in a fiction film. I think we could also do that in a nice and uh, and loving way in yeah. a documentary film. You're right, Love Child is a love story, but it's very difficult with the topic not to get overwhelmed in the sort of geopolitical argument that comes along with it. Can I ask, well, this is a question for both of you, how representative of a refugee experience is the experience that we see in Love Child? I think some aspects are very representative. I know a lot of refugees and I've been dealing with the topic and before in a different in another film, but I think that the waiting time and the the fact that you can't do anything about your destiny is such a big issue for almost every refugee I've met because it takes your power away over your own uh, life. And that is so handicapping. Mm. You can't really ask people to be uh, empowered when they don't have no power. We discussed a lot whether we could have um, a story like Sahan and Leila's representing the refugee issue because they are so intellectual. It works so well for them. Mm. They, they speak English, they have money, they're educated, they don't come out of a traumatic war. But I think it's we've been we discussed it a lot and we thought that they were very good at, at other things. Mm. And in a way, it's also important to say that a refugee is not one thing. It's yeah. like I think it's like 64 million people now who are displaced, who does not live where wow. they want to, to live in the world today. And they, they are all kind of people. It's not like one type. There's so many different type of refugees. Mm. So I think it's also important to say that a refugee is a destiny and they look very different on the outside and on the inside, as different as people who are not refugees. Well, to me, the scenes in which you talk, Leila, about the sense of statelessness and the sense of, uh, of loss, of having lost your link to anywhere, really, they're really, really powerful. And I would imagine that that in itself it is perhaps the universal experience if there is one to be had. It reminded me that the Portuguese have a word that's uh, saudade. You can't translate it into any other language. It means this. Well, it means what you sit and you say in that scene, that sense of lost. How outside of the obvious of speeding the process up to make it easier for people to have a new sense of, of statehood somewhere? What can we be doing to help people who are going through that experience what helps you and what might help other people you know sometimes in the beginning the first years that i was here as in the film you see that i was complaining about my situation i could speak about my problems i discussed many things with sam but nowadays i sometimes feel myself very numbness i mean without any feelings because i feel myself somehow very tired you know and that those days that I lost everything, I kept trying to be a good role model for my son. I just tried to show myself very strong that who is he was not afraid about anything, who has nothing but just a hope. You know, hope is something like a very little voice who is whispering to your ears, maybe, mm. maybe, in the way that the whole, the entire world shouting, no, no, no. 
you are just that hope. And I passed those days and somehow now I feel myself very tired. But from the other side, I say that, no, you should not stop. You should shout again. You should scream because there are many women in the world, Hannah, in my country. If I, if I want to speak about my country, there are many women that they didn't have any such mm. opportunity to come out. Yes, my situation here, after somehow, after finding the job, I try to make a, a bit stable. However, all the court still doesn't issue any legal papers for us. Even we have a DNA papers, even we marry here legally, but still we don't have such a basic rights to go to the court to even change my son's surname. But I should scream to maybe once, one time mm-hmm. in the court, someone hear my voice. I promised myself that if I could handle my life, I try to the other women who come out as a refugee. I could find such opportunity even to help. But for the the other women or the other people in the world, the world become awfully quiet if we stop speaking. Yeah. If we kill the free speech, then we should help each other, especially women and children. Okay, it was something that happened for my life, but my son was not responsible for that. Mm. As Eva said, I can understand that the people can come out from their country for any reason, but for the people who didn't have the others, who didn't have any the other choice, mm. we should give a hand. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And it's interesting what you say about hope, because... Obviously, this film was made over a long period of time, five years. And in those five years, I can look at it now. And looking back, the Arab Spring, the Syria situation, then there was the refugee crisis in Europe that happened. Then there was Donald Trump coming to power. I think rather than it looking like that that was wasted emotion, I actually think it, it, this film really shows the not so much the power, but the value of hope. What hope can actually like get you through on a day to day basis? And so I wondered, given where we are as as an entire world at the minute, what was giving you hope at the moment? What 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 is your hope for the future? Well, I hope that we will stop being so uh, emotionally confused. It seems like today, with all the social media, that people are debating more and more on the internet and doing less and less in in real life oh amen <laughs> and and um, i i think we should uh, we should remember that not to be kind of seduced by demagogic feelings and it's i think it's this story and other stories like uh, like what documentary films can offer you for example is nuances to uh, to a certain topic so things does not become too black and white mm-hmm. and i'm i'm very afraid that that um, that we forget that life is not like that if we if we stick into our screens that we are more and more stuck to in this situation today where we are all limited to to what is in in the internet i think that's uh, that's not the same situation or the same way of of dealing with the world today we need to to look at things more nuanced and and to understand people in different difficult situations and vote for people who has more nuance. Mm. Agreed. Uh, for me, I think about European rights. I mean, 
uh, or European values, excuse me, or the children's rights, women's rights. And uh, I don't know if we want to be quiet, the world would be very dark, very fearful place that's for the next generation. Most of us has a very, very precious things in our life, and it is our child. And what can we give to our child? A world without any freedom, any democracy, especially me and Sand, we're bombarded with the good slogans about freedom, about democracy, about rights. I mean, but here we experience the very something opposite of that mm. slogans. <laughs> and, uh, because of that, we should take care more and give the hand to who are in a need. Yeah, I have one more question for both of you. And my question for Layla is about your lovely son, Manny. How is he? He's okay now. He's uh, he's doing his homework in his room. He can attend a very important entrance exam for the high school. And he's struggling. <laughs> <laughs> he is such yeah. a lovely boy. Thank you. Thank you. And Eva, you hinted earlier that you were trying to work on something else, um, but obviously 2020 has got in the way. Uh, what can we look out for next from you? Well, right now I'm actually trying to do a documentary that captures a bit of the crisis that we are in right now. So we are, uh, we are following a travel agency and some of the destinations, Mallorca, Venice, uh, some of the people out there in the... Who, who has no tourists coming. So it's it's an international film. Actually, we try to shoot it in Scandinavia and then we have local crews mm. shooting for us. So it's Corona safe. So uh, that's pretty interesting to see how we can somehow document something that is actual, but on with the long-term perspective. Thank you so much for your time, Leila and Eva. It has been really interesting. Thank you. Thank you for hosting us. Thank you. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah Dunleavy, it was your turn on the wheels of steel. It's not right, <laughs> but it was your turn. What did you have us watching and why? This week we watched Rebecca. That's the original version of it, made in 1940 by Alfred Hitchcock, starring Laurence Olivier and Joan Fontaine, released in the UK, I think in the last week of October 1940. So basically it's the 80th anniversary. Based on the book by Daphne du Maurier. 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. It was the most popular film in 1940 in the UK. 11 Oscar nominations, including two wins, Best Picture and Best Cinematography. It has permeated popular culture quite substantially, partly for its opening line. Last night, I dreamed I went to Mandalay again. But for me, most brilliantly, through Julia Davis's Hunderbee, in which she plays a version of Mrs. Danvers. Hunderby, one of the worst watch series ever put out on Sky. And yet, what the fuck are you playing at, people? It was hilarious. And also remade recently and currently on Netflix. I haven't watched the remake at all, so I can't tell you the quality of that. It opens in off-season Monte Carlo. That was me just doing a shrug. I don't even know what that means, basically. Um, <laughs> what happens when it's on season? When it's in season? When it's in Which season, it? there's probably a lot more sex than there was in this. When dashing widow uh, Max de Winter 
meets his new wife. She doesn't have a name in this, to be clear. No. The result of Daphne DiMorio writing this in the first person and never giving her a name because she's constantly referred to by her original name or as Mrs. De Winter when they marry or by Darling or Sweetheart or whatever by her husband. Or Child. Child. Well, yeah, we will get onto we'll that. She is the, I suppose, companion, would be the word, of Mrs. Van Hopper, who is possibly one of the more obnoxious characters I've ever seen in anything. She starts off by <laughs> chastising her. Uh, we're going to have to call her the second Mrs. De Winter because I don't know what else to call her at this point. She starts off by chastising the future Mrs. De Winter for being too forward in a conversation in which she said nothing. Literally <laughs> no, nothing. Uh, Mrs. Van Hopper becomes ill. To be fair, that doesn't stop her smoking on through. She, I, oh God, I kind of love her. There's a bit where she says, hurry up, I want to play rummy. And it's just so I wish I could have a person I could just ring and just say, hurry up, hurry up. I'd like to play backgammon. You want a servant? <laughs> Basically. Yeah. So anyway, they, they strike up a romance in which she does terrible drawings and they have conversations about drowning. They go for a lot of drives and I don't know how they didn't ruin the handbrake on that car. Because he keeps Whoa. he keeps pulling it while they're still moving. And those is... roads are very windy and they're going very fast. If, if absolutely had been actual driving instead of a green screen. But still, dangerous driving. He does have a death wish. I suppose that's part of it. He does. He then presents our heroine with the option, really, of whether she's going to go to New York or return with him to Mandalay as his wife. He doesn't quite word it like that. He puts it in the much more romantic terms in which he says, I'm asking you to marry me, you little fool. It was so weird to hear him say that when that's exactly how Gary proposed to me. So, so strange. Did he then suggest you went and made violent love behind a palm tree? Yeah, of course. It's it's the natural succession of things. Anyway, they have a quickie wedding, which seems to be performed by a Charles Darwin impersonator. (laughs) (laughs) And then they head back to Cornwall, to where all Daphne DeMorey stuff is set, to start their new lives together. And that's when the real trouble starts. The first question I want to talk about that I think is really interesting is that a lot of fuss is made about the fact that Max de Winter is older than his second wife. Mm. And yet, do you know what the age difference between Laurence Olivier and Joan Fontaine is? Well, now I think it's small because you've said that, but like, surprise me anyway. 10 years. Is that all? I mean, that's nothing in the grand scale of today's blockbusters, is it? In Hollywood, it's crazy, isn't it? 10 years. And they constantly talk about how young she is. Actually, Keanu Reeves got massively praised for having a girlfriend only nine years younger than him. Wow, he's dating someone almost his own. No, no, he's not, though. He's not. I know. Anyway, they arrive at Mandalay, a very palatial house that's very chintzy and overstuffed. There's stuff everywhere in Mandalay. And is staffed by a collection of interesting people led by Mrs Danvers who I think is the standout role obviously of Rebecca. I think she is probably one of the finest achievements of Daphne du Maurier, Mrs Danvers. Yes. That's why Hitchcock needed to do this because there's something deeply terrifying about Mrs Danvers that has to be for a long time about implied threat rather than actual threat and Hitchcock is good at that shit. And again, what I would say is Mrs. Danvers much younger than I remember her being as well. Because I, I have seen this before and I was completely loved it the first time I watched it. I, it much like Philadelphia Story, it was a thing that I first saw once when I was off sick from school. And it was on like BBC Two on a 
whatever afternoon and I was lying on the sofa with a sick bowl and uh, I must have been genuinely sick enough for my mum to let me have a day off and I remember completely loving this. I've been talking for ages. Can I just add something to the Mrs Danvers conversation in Mm. that she is younger in this than she is in the book but that was done on purpose by Hitchcock from what I have read. Oh really? Yeah. Uh, Played by Judith Anderson who again like the best thing in this film by a hundred miles. Um, so yes, had you seen it before? I have not seen it before. I have read the book and I love Daphne du Maurier. I really love Jamaica Inn. That's my favourite. Lady Pirate. Jamaica Inn's the best Doesn't one. want to get married. Yeah. Lovely stuff. Absolutely. Rebecca, as a story, she I mean, she's a beautiful writer, but it just didn't engage me in the same sort of way. And yeah, I found the film to be a bit like Mandalay in that it was chintzy and overstuffed. So I, I wasn't a huge fan but I did text you to say that halfway through I'd started enjoying it more because I began to watch it as a comedy. I think it was when Danvers is showing the new Mrs. De Winter Rebecca's old bedroom and she pulls out her nightie and she goes, look, isn't it exquisite? And then she goes, you can see my hand through it. I know. Like, I know. It's so weird. So weird. It's, it's so weird. You know how I feel about, you know, marriage. And that's why I loved Jamaica Inn as a kid well, a teenager when I first read it, because it was just, it was about a woman who didn't want to get Mm. married. But that said, I might consider marrying a man if he came with a daily breakfast buffet, which is what happens. (laughs) And an underwear. Yeah. Obviously, it's, it's so, I tell you, everyone speaks so ridiculously clipped, which is not a, a fault of it in any way other than that's how people likely spoke in those days obviously Laurence Olivier a stage performer so there's an element of sort of that to it but some of the dialogue is just hilarious there's like there's a bit, bit where she has a conversation with him and she's like we're we're happy aren't we our marriage is a tremendous success isn't it and I thought if you're saying that love the answer's no well the answer absolutely is not. silence for ages and then she goes why won't you answer me and he goes oh well you said we're happy let's leave it at that <laughs> Wowzers. He continually he continually goes to London for the day from Cornwall. It's hard to do that now. <laughs> it's I don't understand the attraction to him at all. I actually think he's quite what my mother would call dishy. But he's a douche. He's douchey, not dishy. Yeah. Uh so yeah. Well I know he's both. I suppose she is I very young. And, you know, if we were to go through my exes, then it would be a litany of disaster as it was. So, yeah, I may forgive her. But he's so patronising. Everyone is so patronising to her. And yeah. she's told that she's not beautiful all of the time. And Joan Fontaine is an absolute stunner. Yeah. I actually think her performance is very good as much as... I mean, it's way too long. But I think she's very good because even though she's she is beautiful and she's being told she's not, she plays the kind of naive character really, really well, head down, a little bit nervous, thrust mm. into this kind of brand new situation. I mean, if someone chucked me into being an aristocrat, I'd be like, yeah, I have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah, I think she's quite restrained and quite low key. If this had been played bigger, and by bigger I mean a way a lot of stuff was played in the 40s, with more melodrama, with more shrieking, with more more stuff like that it would have been unbearable I I mean I assume that's what Hitchcock wanted rather than it was Joan Fontaine's choice but to keep it quite tight to keep it quite restrained she doesn't streak through the house 
crying. Although at one point she does run upstairs and I, I was really impressed with Joan Fontaine's fitness because that's a lot of stairs to keep running that <laughs> <laughs> she had to go up. So when Danvers is intimidating her for ages in that bedroom and she's shown her the night, yeah. look, you can see my hand through it. And then like the new Mrs. De Winter is like cowering and she starts to cry and Danvers just goes, are you tired? <laughs> you, look, you look tired. She looks terrified, mate. You look tired. <laughs> One of my favourite things in it is Mr. Favell. Because I have to say, you love a guy who, the first time he's introduced in this, arrives and leaves by Through the a window. window. Yeah. And then the second time he appears, it's at a car window. And he is played by... George Sanders. George, George Sanders, yeah. who, was in, who was so great in All About Eve. Going back to you saying about the house, there's also, I really want some pants made by nuns. Yeah, have you not got any? It's your birthday no. soon, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll write yeah. it on the list. Yeah. Pants made by nuns. You know, you said about Hitchcock, and obviously Danvers, I could see, would be an attraction for Hitchcock. And this was his first American film. And actually, he had massive fights with the director because Hitchcock initially rewrote it so it didn't resemble Rebecca at all. And it was actually David O. Selznick who got it to look more like Daphne du Maurier. But there's an interesting bit that they had to change. I don't know if you were going to talk about it. In, I don't know what it is that you're about to say. In, I'm excited. Oh, that's exciting that you're excited. In the book, Max de Winter is actually a murderer. He kills his wife. He shoots her when he thinks that she is carrying someone else's child and that child would then take over his property. Mm. He shoots Rebecca and then, like, sculls the boat, puts her out to sea, etc., etc. And in the film, because... At the time, if a spouse killed their other half, they had to be punished. And obviously Max isn't punished. So they changed it to, it was an accident. And yeah, mm. she bangs her head but, during an argument. I don't remember that from the book, but I do remember that Mrs. Danvers didn't die in the book. Well, she may have died in the book, but it wasn't her death wasn't explicitly mentioned. Whereas you see her die in this, mm. in the fire at the end. It's kind of an open end of what's happened to Danvers at the end of the book. Uh, the pregnancy thing's interesting in this. The problem is that she might be pregnant with somebody else's baby, as you've mentioned, and he knows it wouldn't be his baby, but she would tell people it was. This setting up of a pregnancy, he said, she said, situation. He kept repeating, who would believe me? And I thought, it's 1940. Well, it was 1930s when it was written. Every fucker would believe you. You were the man. Yeah. Who would believe the woman in that scenario? Totally. If that seemed slightly fake in that sense. It seemed like a, a problem that had been created that wouldn't actually have happened. I'll tell you what, though. The court scene feels very like something that would happen in this day and age as well, where they're just like, anyway, we're going to ask Mr. De Winter some questions. He could possibly have murdered his wife. Ask, he gets asked a couple of questions and he goes, oh, it's all too much. Leave me alone. And they go, break yeah. for lunch. Okay. Yeah, yeah. that's when they go to the car and George, and George Sanders turns up and said, I'm a perfectly normal, harmless bloke. <laughs> <laughs> well, not many that I know start the conversation like that. <laughs> yeah, when you see that Tinder profile, run the other way. <laughs> <laughs> there is a fun fact in here, if you're interested. Mrs. Danvers directs them to the doctor, who then tells them that Rebecca was not pregnant, but in fact had cancer, mm -hmm. something that she had kept from everybody. And Mrs. Danvers tells them the address and she said yes it was a doctor he lived at 165 Goldhawk Road Shepherd's Bush which I know for a fact is a real street Goldhawk Road is a real street in Shepherd's Bush and I know that because not when this film was set but when this film was made 
Do you know who resided at 202 Goldhawk Road, Shepherd's Bush? No, but now I'm excited. It was the family done leaving. Really? Amazing. Yep. I sent my Auntie Jackie a message and said, what was the number of the house that you lived on at Goldhawk Road? She said, 202. And I said, all right, that's quite near, 165. A Hitchcock just had someone call it a total dump. And she replied and said, well, to be honest, my brothers did bring the colleague of the street down quite a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Which made me laugh, I tell you. So it ends with the house burning down and that is it. Did you like it, Mick? Did I like it? Not massively, but once I started just enjoying it as a comedy from the way they were talking and stuff, I liked it a lot more and it was quite entertaining to repeat what they said in my version of their accent. That was fun. But yeah, but I've got to admit that I'm not a massive fan of Rebecca the book and therefore I was unlikely to fall in love with Rebecca the film because I don't like the story very much. And it is, it's incredibly of its time, isn't it? That is how people spoke. But it's very much about smug, posh people getting away with shit. And that didn't really do it yeah. for me, to be honest with you. Is it still a beautiful film to look at? Yeah, it's gorgeous. I can understand why it won an Oscar for cinematography. It is utterly stunning. Yeah. You see, I possibly, because, like I say, I first watched it when I was quite young. Um, actually, probably before I read the book, Rebecca. Yeah, I'm kind of fond of it in a nostalgic way. And I I can't imagine what it would have been in anybody else's hands apart from Hitchcock because it needed that tension, that building tension. Because I don't know what the first, like, hour of it would have been if there hadn't been the knowledge that things were likely to go really tits up Mm. really quickly in this. Extra fun fact. I'm pretty sure it's the only Hitchcock movie that doesn't have a murder in it. Really? Mm. I'm going to say, I mean, it's obviously dated because it's 80 years old. What cut, What doesn't date in 80 years? But I don't know that it's also not rated at the same time. I wouldn't be rushing to recommend it to anyone. Right. Are you going to watch the new one, do you think? It's got Kristen Scott Thomas in and I like her a lot. But again, I don't really she, like the story of Rebecca, Danvers? so probably not. She plays Danvers, yeah. It's interesting. I probably probably wouldn't watch it because I find, I tell you, acceptable in a film made in 1940, but not at all acceptable in a film made in 2020. The, so, the phrase yeah. make violent love to you behind a palm tree has a whole different meaning these days. Yeah, absolutely. We've all done it. <laughs> what are we going to watch next week, Mick? So, yeah, next month is happy 21st birthday to Juice Bigelow, male gigolo. But we're not going to watch that. We're not going to watch it. I just wanted Thanks to say God. it to see your face. And it was it was a picture, guys. <laughs> Instead, we're going to watch The Green Mile, which is also celebrating Get the Key to the Door. Because one, I've never seen it all the way through. And two, it's got Harry Dean Stanton in it. And apparently all my choices have to contain Harry Dean Stanton. It's also got Michael Jeter in it, who I absolutely love. Oh, he is great. I had to look at his face, but now I know his face and I think he's great. Good picnic. It's long. It's long though, isn't it? They're all long. I think the Green Mile's probably about three hours. Great. <laughs> what the fuck else am I doing, Hannah? I can't leave my house. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.